I just uh, we just celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary, so the golden wedding anniversary is coming this next year. I just have to say this: I had a my my uh, uh, paternal grandmother, uh, great grandmother, uh, and grandma and grandpa Bandy had a 75th wedding anniversary. You can imagine such a thing. Married 75 years. And uh, he's a Christian man and a great character. And this was down in Southern California. Uh, and uh, I remember going through the line and he was sitting in his chair and he took my hand and his hand. And I, this was years ago. And he got, got really close to me. He said, young man, he said, he said, 75 years is a long time to be married to one woman. And, <laughs> Then there was a dramatic pause, and he said, this close to Hollywood. <laughs> this is a great old guy. <laughs> um, the complex capacity of the human brain is a subject of ever-widening scientific wonder. Now, you're going to want to hang on to this. I, I don't think you'll be able to re- remember it. Some of you with some scientific background will, but... Uh, the human brain, three and a half, four pounds, has 10 billion cells, which are only a shadow of its complexity because each cell sends out tens of thousands of uh, tentacles, which connect again to ten to thousands of neighboring cells, each which are constantly exchanging data impulses. The complexity intensifies when we understand that each data signal can then take one of a possible 20,000 different paths per cell. The staggering fact is that the, the combinations are beyond comprehension, and this is it. The total number of pathways through the brain exceed 10 to the 80th power, which is 10 with 80 zeros behind it, which is more than all the particles in the universe. Not more than all the stars in the universe, more than all the particles in the universe. This is the, the, the math is absolutely astonishing. So from the perspective of computation, the human brain is the most complex system in the cosmos. It is literally supra-cosmic, supra-astronomical. It's beyond astronomical. I'm not, I'm, I know this is just mind-boggling stuff. Because you realize if you're just going to talk about stars in the universe, they're in our galaxy are 100,000 million stars. Our galaxy is 100 light years across, 100 light years to get to the edge of the Milky Way. Then it's 3 million light years to the next galaxy, which has 100,000 million stars. In fact, they say in theoretical space, there are 100,000 million galaxies, each with 100,000 million stars. And that the end of the expanding universe is 80 billion light years to the edge of it. So I just wanted to toss that out there. <laughs> so anyway, but, but the complexity of the human brain is supra-astronomical. 
supracosmic. And there's more to wonder at because the supracosmic complexity of the human brain is matched by its incredible storage capacity. As mathematician Ray Meningus explains by comparing the brain with today's computers, and I'm quoting him. He said, let us consider the computer in which I write this chapter. It is a 64-bit input channel. That is, there are 64 wires that can carry information into the microprocessor. The processor serves as the brain, in quotes, of my computer. It has a storage capacity of 5 gigabytes, that is 5 billion pieces of raw information. And it can process, that is, think about information at the rate of 1 gigahertz. This translates to a calculation every nanosecond. At this rate, my computer can execute 1 billion operations every second. My computer is slow and has a relatively low capacity for storing information. The fastest computer currently is the IBM Blue Gene L, and I understand it's been exceeded in the last couple of years, which runs at speeds of 360 trillion operations per second and has a storage capacity in hundreds of gigabytes. And then here's what Ray Meninga says. This pales with the storage capacity of the human brain. The largest grid of linked computers has a storage capacity of 10 million gigabytes, which is still much less than the capacity of a single human brain. So the human brain does not miss a thing. And we could talk about other aspects of it. It is capable of receiving and giving the subtlest input. So the human brain can imagine a universe in which time bends, as Einstein did. Or it can create the polyphonic texture of a Bach fugue or transmit and receive a message from God himself, a feat which no computer will ever accomplish. It can do that. It can receive a message from God and transmit a message to God. So the amazing potential of the human mind reaches this apex in this possibility, and I'm speaking scripturally, of possessing the very mind of Christ through the word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a possibility affirmed by Apostle Paul when he said, and I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. No computer will ever be able to think God's thoughts, will, nor will any device ever be able to know the heart of God and do its works. So the mystery that... that uh, that resides between our, our ears with its supra-cosmic complexity and its storage capacity was indeed created to have the mind of Christ. This is one of the amazing things of being made in the image of God, the imago dei, the capacities that God has given us. Now, the incredible potential of the believer's mind introduces the great scandal of today's church, that is, Christians without Christian minds. Christians who don't think Christianly. You may say that's a contradiction in terms. 
And it, it may indeed be, but there are Christians who don't think like Christians. Maybe they think about some essential things, but their minds don't think that way. And uh, for years, there's been some prophetic voices. When I was uh, uh, pastoring in Wheaton, they dedicated the Billy Graham Center, which was just, uh, just across the corner from our church. If I had a good arm, I could throw a baseball to it, to the Billy Graham Center. And on that day, the uh, former United Nations Secretary General, Charles Malik, told that distinguished audience, he said, Believe me, my friends, the mind today is in profound trouble, perhaps more than ever before. How to order the mind on sound Christian principles at the heart of where the mind is formed and informed is one of the greatest themes that can be considered. In Harry Blameyer's much-discussed book, The Christian Mind, has said that while Christians may worship and pray as Christians, they do not think as Christians. And I'm quoting him. The Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervousness unmatched in Christian history. Elsewhere, he sees our generation as suffering from religious anorexia, a loss of appetite for growth in Christ. I was talking to your pastor over dinner tonight, he says, what, what, what is one of your concerns about the church? And I said, one of my concerns about the evangelical church is while in the last 30 years, the evangelical academic community has produced some of the greatest commentaries ever written by people who really do believe the Bible is the word of God. And yet I can drive across the country and go to a church that says, Bible church, take my family in on a Sunday morning hear a text read, and departed from never to be returned to. I mean, that, that happens all the time. Where people are, 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 are preaching interdirected experience and story upon story upon story without ever really engaging the mind in the Scriptures. Now, the bottom line is, this tragic scandal comes from Um, an unwillingness, a declining willingness to property program the amazing instruments God has given us. Christians leave their 12 billion cells unguarded, unthinking, and undisciplined. Now, when we turn to God's Word, we're aware that biblical writers understood the problem in a less technical, though more personally beneficial way. So, you read in the Proverbs, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. For as he thinks within himself, so is he, Proverbs 23.7. So the scriptures rightly tell us that input determines output, that our programming determines production. Now let me just step back and say, I just want to say, so I prepare you, that I'm going to... I'm going to end this talk uh, on the edge of the cliff because I'm going to talk about how we need to guard our minds, but I'm not going to tell you what we need to do with our minds. Do with our minds is, is tomorrow. So, so be prepared to, to walk out of here unsatisfied. <laughs> 
Now, no one understood this matter that input determines output better than the Apostle Paul. In fact, in his letter to the Philippians, after alluding to guarding the heart, Paul prescribed his personal mental program in one sublime sentence. He was commending it to Iodia and Syneche and the rest of his uh, brothers and sisters in the fellowship of the gospel of the Philippians church. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what you see here with the great apostle is an intentionally positive uh, cultivation of the mind. Something's intentionally life-giving, intentionally elevating. And as you read this, each, everything is a matter of personal choice. Our choices make all the difference in the world. And the fact is, we can choose a thought program which will produce a Christian mind. So I want to say, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we're free to have a Christian mind. It's within our reach. It's in our duty. We can think God's thoughts after God. We can receive and transmit God's thoughts. Now, as, as, we're, as we're introducing this subject, and how Paul's program should affect our minds, the sheer positive demands a determined rejection of the negative. What I did here is just took this and turned it on its head, Philippians 4.8, and said, Finally, brothers... Whatever is untrue, whatever is ignoble, whatever is wrong, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is unadmirable, if there is anything shoddy or not worthy of praise, don't think on those things. I mean, Apostle Paul was no Pollyanna. He knew the dark side of human experience, but this is what he chose to do with his mind. So, we can lay it down as fundamental to this. A Christian mind demands conscious refusal. A Christian mind is impossible without the discipline of refusal. If you're going to have all that garbage come in, you're not going to have it. This is getting dated now, but years ago, Charles Colson told of sitting at dinner with the president of one of the three major television networks. And you can imagine Charles Colson, not shy. He said he had a tremendous opportunity to influence the man as he told him how millions of Christians were offended by the network's programming. And then knowing that TV executives have an intense interest in profit, he suggested it would be good business to air wholesome Family entertainment. After all, added Colson, there are 50 million born-again Christians out there. So he threw the gauntlet down to this major network executive. But it was Charles Colson who got slam-dunked in the conversation. 
because the network president presented convincing examples that Christians did not watch the wholesome shows any more than non-Christians. He used a dramatic example to prove it. And indeed, studies by secular networks as well as the Christian network have shown that the viewing habits of Christians are no different than non-Christians. You may be uh, kind of sucking air right now. Say, it really? How can this be? Well, I, I have uh, horrifying statistics that I'll show you in a moment. Well, since TV is a business, it gives its customers, the public, what they want, and it's a mere image of us. Now, some of this is just, I'll, I'll just kind of blow through it because it's, you've, it's pretty common understanding. But according to A.C. Nielsen, the TV set in an average home is on seven hours and seven minutes a day, and the average viewer watches four and one-half hours each day. The average person watches four and a half hours of television today in America. The statistics for religious homes are just a half hour less. They watch it four hours. Renowned media expert Professor Neil Postman of New York University says that between the ages of 6 and 18, the average child spends 15,000 to 16,000 hours in front of the tube, whereas he spends 13,000 hours in school. Postman says that during the first 20 years of an American child's life, he will see some one million commercials at the rate of a thousand per week. And I and I since this has been written, I'm going, no, nah, it's more than that. These things come so fast. It's probably two thousand a week. And the effects are infamous. Passivity. It's innately passive. Viewer listlessly watches images on the screen and real life becomes too requiring. And the viewer, and I'm thinking of a young guy, can imagine he's done it by merely watching it. It affects our attention span. One of the things that I, I have found today, this is one of the things that a preacher knows, it's, I think, ten times harder to preach today to the average congregation than it was a hundred years ago. Why? A hundred years ago, it was the most stimulating thing that happened all week long. <laughs> Seriously. It was. Do you know, I think it's a, it's a fact, that you could watch more murders and perversions in one week on television than our grandparents, great-grandparents read about in all their life. I mean, it really has changed. And, 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 uh, and, and then because of the fleeting images, things jumping around, you find that people have a hard time listening to anything without visual stimulation to sit and listen. I mean, if you, if you have expository preaching, you have to learn to listen to the Word which is a biblical mandate, to hear the word, to listen. People find it very difficult. And not only that, it inhibits thinking. There's a Garfield cartoon that pictures Garfield watching TV with his eyelids half-masked. You know, Garfield the cat. His friend asks, what are you watching, Garfield? I don't know. 
Who's the lead character? I don't know. Well, what's the plot? And Garfield says, hey, I'm watching television. Stop making me think, okay? (laughs) And in truth, when moving images dominate, the written or spoken word reason subsides. Thinking requires a certain distance and time to reflect, whereas watching something only gets reactions. You can't think. And people don't think. They just react. And then, if it is dominant in a family, it creates distance. As Ann Landers put it, television has proved that people will look at anything rather than each other. So there's a family holiday and everybody's looking at the same screen. <laughs> They're all around the room. I, I once uh, made a pastoral visit to, the ho- to a home. And, and admittedly, the man wasn't a Christian. His wife was a Christian. He wasn't a Christian, so I wasn't particularly welcome. But I walked in. He, he did get up from his lazy boy to open the door. And then I came back in and, and tried to carry on a conversation, and he just kept looking at the screen with me trying to talk to him, and he would nod a little bit and, and make a few tones and so on. And finally, when I excused myself, I went to the door and left and I walked out and I looked back through the window of the house and there's the tube and there he is in his lazy boy looking at the tube. You know, the flickering screen. Well, these effects are bad enough but more pernicious things assault the average four-hour-a-day viewer. And our sexuality is proselytized and eroticized by the TV world. Millions of Christians have been desensitized and sensualized. They sit passively night after night before lewdness and double entendre without the slightest twinge. You know, what what do I mean by double entendre? The talk show hosts, you know, that that say, use regular words and say dirty things, right? It just goes, just sinks right in. Along with this, and I'm just talking about the media. I'm even talking about the Internet. TV watching inculcates irreverence for God. Uh, film critic Michael Medved, writing in 1990, said the record for expletives goes to the Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas, which had 272 expletives. 246 were variations of one single word. You can guess what that is. There was a major obscenity every 32 seconds. Well, I think that's been eclipsed today by some things I've heard about. But you know what? Nobody counts. He doesn't count. Nobody counts. Is the blasphemous use of God's name. The number of times that, uh, that, that God and oh God is used as a filler for absent syntax. You know, it's the urbane... Uh, conversations, they're saying, oh, God. It's, it's like O-G-A-W-D, you know, kind of that kind of a intonation. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, you know. And that Jesus and Christ are used as angry exclamation points. I mean, repeatedly. So in the movies, men employ the name God in such a way as to affect a male swagger in a lawn. I mean, if you can damn God, you must be quite a man. Female stars regularly use the name with fashionable intonation 
to communicate a worldly wise or banely bored air. Or say, oh God, when, uh, uh, when their house has been remodeled and they walk in and see it for the first time. Always wait to hear what they're going to say. It's almost always, oh God. Now, God is debased on every side in ways so subtle that Christians don't even take notice. But their inner computers do as the spirit of blasphemy infuses their own souls. And I, I was down in uh, Florida last year with uh, a wealthy Christian executive. And in my conversation, and I mean he's a man who gives big to charities and goes to a good evangelical church. And about three times during the meal, I'd say something, he'd go, oh, and he'd realize he was sitting with me and he wouldn't say it. And I realized that, oh, God, was a matter of, it was just part of his vocabulary. And I thought, he doesn't realize that he's profaning the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And I think a spirit of blasphemy sneaks right into Christian conversation. But perhaps the most subtle of television evils is the promotion of worldviews that are sub-Christian and spiritually destructive. And Disney's no protection. The Little Mermaid is innocent enough if you ignore the storyline. What's the storyline? Huh? Well, essentially that. It is follow your heart, ignore your parents. Cool. Now, I'm going to tell a story of myself I'm not too proud of, but, I'll, I'll, I, I, but I want to make the point. When the, I, I got sucked into this, but when the movie Titanic came out, I had a parishioner come by and say, Oh, Pastor, I just saw this great movie, Titanic. He said, It's awesome. And uh, so I thought, well... I'll, 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 my wife and I will go see it. It was a Saturday night. I had my sermon done. I went down to the local theater to watch Titanic, and it was packed out. It was absolutely packed out. The only place was down the front row. And so I'm sitting on the front row. Um, well, I'm, I'm about midway through this thing, and, and this nude scene comes on, you know. I don't know what her name is. I don't want to know her name. But here I'm under this, you know, 40-foot naked lady, you know, <laughs> sitting there, Pastor Hughes, on Saturday night with his wife. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? Uh, I was actually too embarrassed to walk out. Of course, the, the end of that was, as I got up and started to walk out, and so, someone said to me, oh, Pastor Hughes, it's so good to see you. But... I reflected on that, that movie. Do you know that, uh, that, that Time Magazine said that it was such a rage with uh, young teenage girls that there were some of them paid to go to the theater 13 to 14 times to watch that during that time. You know what they saw? They got a worldview that was totally minus God. I don't know if you noticed that. 
that the only thing that had to do with God was uh, this uh, ensemble playing Nearer My God to Thee as the boat's going down. But, of course, nobody would know they were playing Nearer My God to Thee in the theater. That was about it. But here's, here's 1,600 souls going to their death, and it's totally devoid, devoid of God at the turn of the century. It, is, it was essentially hedonistic and superficial and sentimental to, to the nth degree. Jack, the protagonist from The Hold, has a sexual affair in the backseat of a car in the hold of the ship of, of a rich man's uh, whoever she was. And on the basis of that, Jack gives his life for her because, because he had a sexual encounter with her. That is sentimental to the nth degree. And what that girl learned, those 13, 14-year-old girls, that a one-night affair may be expected to be the apex of her life. That instant sex will buy her sacrificial love. Uh Uh-huh. That the ultimate in life is to pursue your own pleasures because in her life, the woman that survives it, she goes on to become uh, a woman who then has her own biplane and flies it and rides her horse in the surf. And when she's a wizened old lady at the end, she sentimentally takes, goes out on a boat over the Titanic and drops in the pendant uh, to, in memory of Jack of years before. That the glory of old age comes from the sins of one's youth. Great message. Sentimental bunk. Now, most here, I suspect, are not in the thrall of the tube, but the statistics reveal that the viewing halves of Christians are generally are the same as the rest of culture. And here it is. In April 2000, this is 10 years old now, study by the Pew Research Center for the People and the Press Biennial Media Consumption Survey. But Pew is a very respectable survey, reveals very little difference. Here's the question. How often do you watch CBS, ABC, and NBC? And uh, by the way, it's the general population of born-again Christians are asked this. And the, foot, the asterisk says that for born again, responded yes to the question, would you describe yourself as born again or an evangelical Christian? doesn't mean they're born again. It doesn't mean they're evangelicals, but they describe themselves that way. General population. How often do you watch CBS, ABC, and NBC? General population, 30%. Born again Christians, 31%. How often do you watch CNN? General population, 21%. Born again Christian, 22%. CNBC. General population, 13%. Born again Christian, 12%. Fox News, general population 18%, born-again Christians 21%. But here's where it comes in. Ricky Lake or Jerry Springer, general population 7%, born-again Christians 10%. Rosie O'Donnell or Oprah Winfrey, general population 10%, born-again Christians 13%. I don't know how it happened. I mean, 
But that's what it says. Now, I am aware of the dangers of using words like all, every, and always. Uh, when, I, when I'm counseling couples that are having trouble, I say, don't say all. And don't say every time. You know, stay away from those absolutizing words. I'm not talking about marital counseling right now. But I'm going to make an absolute statement. It is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his or her evenings, month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, watching the major TV networks or contemporary DVDs to have a Christian mind. This is always true of all Christians in all situations. I would die for that statement. It's true. You can't have a Christian mind and do that. Now, am I suggesting some new legalism which forbids uh, cinema? I wouldn't do that. There are some worthwhile things. And, and I would say while Christianity is by nature countercultural, it's not anti-cultural. But what I am calling for believers is to take control of their minds, what comes in and what goes out. And if you cannot control what you watch and read, perhaps it needs to go. And I'll use the words of extreme mortification from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. The psalmist gives sage advice for those in the media age. I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. And I'm sure he wasn't thinking of television, but it's perfect. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. Psalm 102, 2 and 3. Now, what we're going to do tomorrow morning, we're going to consider uh, Paul's commendation about truth and nobility and righteousness and purity and loveliness and admirability and excellence and praiseworthiness, elevating things. But what I want, what I want to say right now is that Philippians 4.8, when it mentions all those things, says, think about such things. And the word that he uses is the word logizomai, from which we get the mathematical computer-like word logarithm. So that when it says, think about such things, it means a deliberate, prolonged contemplation as if one is weighing a mathematical problem. We are to think long and hard about the wonderful elements God wants us to put into our minds. God calls us in his word, to a massive, positive discipline of mind. Um, we can have the mind of Christ. It's God's will that we have the mind of Christ. But it begins by taking those 12 billion cells with those 10,000 tendrils from each cell with the 20,000 possible paths so that the uh, complexity of it is 10th the 80th power and has a, uh, uh, a memory capacity that exceeds anything 
uh, uh, in the world to it, it calls for the discipline of negation to say no to say nine no farther and uh, and we can do it now I haven't gone to the grace part of this but you know that Anything that God calls you to do, he'll give you the grace to do, won't he? And so I'm, I'm going to leave us there in this not particularly high spot, but a preparation to what is the input uh, that he calls us to have. And uh, what a gracious thing if some of you, especially, I, I don't know anybody here, but if, if, if tonight... Tomorrow, you said, by God's grace, I, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to take control of the discipline of my mind because it's God's will for the mind of Christ to reside in me. What a step. What a world-changing thing that would be. Your, your world. Well, that's it. Um, may I lead us in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which is true and perfect, and it, it renews the soul, it is a light and lamp to our feet, it is uh, our very life and our very food. We pray, God, that we would uh, partake deeply of the life that you've given us in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.